Welcome everyone to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. This is our final episode of 2020. Would you believe it? And my goodness, what a year it's been, both in Formula One itself and on this very podcast. We've had lots of great guests, lots of wonderful anecdotes, lots of laughs and quite a few tears too. And I hope you agree some real insights into some of the sport's high rollers. Of course, this year has been unlike any other. The condensed 17 race season taking place against the backdrop of the global pandemic. To get the sport back up and running in July was a wonderful achievement. And wherever you've been listening, I hope you've managed to stay healthy and I hope Beyond the Grid has helped to put a smile on your face. Now, coming up on this Christmas cracker of a show, I've picked out some of my personal highlights from the past year. Of course, every guest has provided great insight and spectacular anecdotes, but we haven't got time to run audio from all 40 episodes. That's what our archive is for. So whether you've been listening to every episode or are just here to reminisce, here are my favourite bits of 2020. First up, let's hear from the FIA's race director and safety delegate, Michael Massey. This is only year two for him in the top job, and he's had to deal with a huge amount, from the COVID-19 crisis to the pink Mercedes investigation and Roman Grosjean's accident in the Bahrain Grand Prix. I caught up with Michael after the season-opening Austrian Grand Prix in July. And he spoke poignantly about how he was reluctantly thrust into the race director's role after the sudden passing of his mentor, Charlie Whiting, ahead of the 2019 Australian Grand Prix. I know it's a painful memory for, for all of us, but can I ask you a little bit about that weekend in terms of how much contact did you have with Charlie prior to the race in, in Melbourne? A fair bit, obviously, in the lead up to and preparation um there was quite a bit and you know out there on the the tuesday and started sort of preparing bits and pieces wednesday out there and then myself and colin haywood actually came back in the car with him on the wednesday night back to the hotel and yeah it was like all good planning just sort of standing out the front of the hotel because i was only staying at home down the road and it's like yep we've got to do this this and this tomorrow all things going well, let's go and have a bite to eat at the uh, Japanese restaurant around the corner tomorrow night. Um, so that was sort of all good, fine. And uh, yeah, then obviously Thursday morning, um, yeah, what happened? Um, he didn't, uh, wasn't able to join us anymore. So yeah, it was a, it was a tough, it was a tough emotional weekend, particularly knowing what had happened very soon after getting to the circuit, but not being able to literally tell us all, you know, the only person that um, I actually did speak to was my mother because it was like, it was all a bit too much. It was a tough day. It was a tough, tough weekend, but um, something that on the other hand that I couldn't be more proud of was the way that the entire FIA staff, the F1 community as a whole with the support of the teams, I was very fortunate that we were in Australia and it was a trackside officiating team that I knew extremely well, obviously with Tim Schenken as the clerk of the course and the entire CAMS team and the Australian Grand Prix Corporation team who I'd had a long relationship with. Without everyone, that weekend wouldn't have happened. And the way everyone stepped up and helped each other showed, you know, take out the little niggling and all the rest of it that we see in the background and the 
the gloves off fight on a racetrack behind the scenes everyone was completely united as one to make sure that we could achieve what we did and got through it all and the teams were supportive the teams were amazing the drivers were amazing everyone um you know the teams could not have been more helpful getting through you know realistically that weekend in bahrain back to back i think uh once we got to china the uh the filter started coming off a little bit and as by the time we got to uh to barcelona for the first of the european events the boys sitting next to me said quite clearly well Welcome to Formula One, because uh, they've all forgotten about uh, <laughs> the nice part. But no, I, honestly, Tom could not have done it without everyone's help in different ways. He's an impressive character, is Michael, and his clear thinking and honesty impressed me a lot, as did a certain Mercedes driver. Even though 2020's drawing to a close, the pace of life doesn't seem to have slowed down just yet. And if you're looking for a way to save time and still eat well, then make sure you check out this special offer from HelloFresh before it's too late. HelloFresh deliver pre-portioned and packaged ingredients straight to your door so you can avoid those supermarket queues and still cook delicious dinners from scratch and take the credit for whipping it up. They have a huge range of recipes to choose from and options to suit every lifestyle, including rapid recipes, which means you can have dinner on the table in under 20 minutes. And their flexible subscription means you can change, pause or cancel your deliveries whenever you need to. Whether you're in the mood for El Paso burgers, tortellini bake or cheesy mushroom polenta, trust me, there's something for everyone to enjoy and I haven't found a recipe that hasn't hit the spot yet. And because the ingredients are all pre-portioned, it means no waste or unused food left over in the fridge. In fact, HelloFresh customers waste 21% less food than those who buy from the supermarket. Get 50% off your first HelloFresh box and 35% off your next three with the code FORMULA1. Go to hellofresh.co.uk and enter the code FORMULA1 to redeem this offer. Hamilton crosses the line to win the Formula One title of 2020. Lewis Hamilton reaches the summit and becomes a seven-time world champion. Get in there, Lewis. What a way to win your seventh world title. That for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Yes, 2020 was another year of domination by Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. And for Lewis, clinching his seventh world championship in Turkey was a huge moment because he finally equaled the tally of the great Michael Schumacher. And let's not forget that this has been quite a journey for Lewis as well. He graduated to Formula One yonks ago, back in 2007, when he beat Pedro de la Rosa to the second McLaren seat alongside Fernando Alonso. De la Rosa fancied his chances of racing for McLaren full-time in 2007, until he tested for McLaren alongside Lewis in the autumn of 2006. You've got that podium, as I said earlier. Um, how confident were you of racing in 2007 uh, for the team? No. Mid-2006. I was not confident at all. I mean, because of this man, Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, this little man that was uh, flying. But I tell you why I realized that it was not possible. And, I, why, and why, more importantly, I was not disappointed. Because I was never disappointed that Luis got the drive. Because I, wa I, I was disappointed with McLaren at one point, that when Juan, as I was saying, when Juan Pablo left, 
that I was given the chance at the French Grand Prix and then the German Grand Prix and then the, you know, but every race was like a passport of, uh, you know, they, they've said, they stamped the visa and okay, you can race in the next race, you can race. And then suddenly Luis was GP2 champion and then it was like, well, we are not sure for the next race. I, I didn't feel that the team trusted in me enough. Really, you know, you have to give, if you go for the reserve driver and you have to give him credit and say, okay, look, the next eight races are yours. You are the reserve driver. You're the test driver. You, you know the car better than anyone. But, you know, I was on the podium as well, but they never did that. They always, okay, next race, next race until the end of the season. And that, that was, I thought it was bad for myself, but especially, especially for the team, because there were situations where I was under a lot of pressure. If I don't, if I don't finish in front of Kimi the next race, or if I don't do well, uh, Luis will jump into the car. So that was wrong in a way, you know, and uh, that, but I was nothing against Luis. Luis was, you know, just won the championship in GP2, blah, blah, blah. Then we got to test in September one day with Luis in Silverstone. And that's when my mind changed. Because we were, he had, we had two cars. We were testing there. It was his first ever Formula One experience. He did a run, and he was nowhere, you know. And I remember looking at his data and uh, with Philip Prue, with his uh, my race engineer back then, and and we were looking and, and and Philip told me the boy will need to improve a lot over the years, you know. I mean, oh, you know, it's it's a long it's a long road for for Luis, but he will be good. But we just have to give him time, blah blah blah. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I did a run, came back, looked at the times, and I, I saw Luis was fastest, you know, on the second run. And I looked in the data and I said, what happened? And well, we put him new tires. So I looked in the data and he was so fast through the, through, through Cops, Beckett's, Maggots, that then I just realized the potential of Lewis Hamilton. Just looking at the data for a couple of seconds, I realized we had a massive problem. This guy was... We, Pedro de la Rosa. We, we and all the drivers in the oh, grid. <laughs> <laughs> because, Tom, if Pedro de la Rosa has a problem, everyone has. <laughs> man, you know, but was, that was the test, was it? Where you it realized? was his first ever Formula One test. Yeah. His second run in Silverstone. And I realized this guy is very, very fast. I mean, I've seen a lot of drivers in my life. I, I, you know, I've been with, with very good drivers, I would say. And I feel very honored of that. But when I saw Luis... I thought, wow, this is very special. And then, then when the season was over, I knew that Luis would be in the race car. I knew that Fernando was signed. And I was happy with that because I, I, I said to myself, if I was in, on Ron's feet or Martin Widmar's feet, I would take the same decision because Luis is incredibly fast and Fernando, we all know, he's mega. Did you expect it to blow up in 2007 in the way that it did between... Alonso and Hamilton. And do you think Fernando underestimated Lewis Hamilton? I think that, uh, well, I was surprised of how it all exploded, unfortunately, because if we look back, that driver pairing is possibly the strongest there's ever been. Ever. I mean, I'm, you know. Senna Prost. Yes. Better than that. Yeah. And it goes back to your original question. I always think that the new generations are stronger. So it's not nothing against Senna or Prost. They're they my heroes, you know, I'm forever heroes. But actually, I think that that level of uh, Fernando and Luis was amazing. I mean, I, I remember looking at their data and uh, thinking these guys are from a different planet. And uh, and still, uh, but I was not expecting for the relationship to, to explode 
It was a shame, Tom, because those two guys, you know, they, they would have brought so many championships to McLaren. I know a lot of you love that anecdote as much as me. And I know a lot of you love my next featured guest a lot as well. It's Lando Norris. Lando, the gap to Hamilton was 4.8, 4.8. I think that's a podium, mate. I think that's a podium. Yeah, boy! Twenty twenty was a big year for Lando. He improved as a driver, and as you just heard, he scored his first podium in Formula One at the season opening Austrian Grand Prix. And his consistency helped McLaren to third in the constructors championship. But what's Lando really like? I caught up with him way back at pre-season testing in March, and he gave me an insight into his life away from the track. Are you a bit of a night owl? Oh, completely. So what, 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 I mean, you, you say you go to bed at four o'clock in the morning and that... That's, I, that's I was on a rare, a rare occasion that, that, that I've decided to clean. <laughs> <laughs> but is it, I mean, are you a midnight? Is it? Oh, uh, yes. I um, Midnight to bed. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually lately, and so over the winter I was, and I was going to bed too late for now, for going back to McLaren, for going back to, to doing what I love. Um, and for working and operating at my best, there's, I, have, I have different times. So I have the, I want to spend all night having fun and playing games and whatever. There is no limit to that. That can end up, sometimes that doesn't end. I'll spend the 48 hours doing it. Um, and then hey, something. Hey, 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 stop. You really? really? Yeah. Really? 48 hours there was, non-stop gaming? Oh, I was 48 hours. I would say, say I wake up at 10 in the morning um, have some breakfast, get on the computer <laughs> for a few hours, have lunch, and pretty much spend, let's say, two o'clock until seven, or actually, won't be able to, two o'clock till nine, I'll have dinner, and then go from nine till the next day. What time? All through the night? Seven till seven a.m. Till seven a.m. Still playing. <laughs> breakfast. Uh, then I'll spend all the way till like midnight the next day. That's extraordinary. But it's just, I don't know why, it's just, that's how much I, well, I, suppose I enjoy old, things. Other 20 I mean, other than clogging. them going out at night and yeah. coming out at five every morning and, and you're doing it being drunk way. and stuff. So mine's, I'm not getting drunk. I'm, I, I do that very rarely, um, but I don't enjoy that. Whereas I love doing stuff and stuff I love doing, I just can't stop doing. So whether it's driving or, you know, designing my helmets or designing my clothing, um, or coming up with those ideas or playing games or something or playing my, my computer. Once I'm doing that, I just, I'm just having so much fun. I don't go, oh, I'm getting a bit tired now. I just, the fun overrides all of that and the enjoyment overrides all of that. Um, and I become a nerd and I spend however many hours that is. Sounds exhausting, Lando, but what an eye-opener that was. And I was treated to more eye-opening insight from my next guest as well. I know many of you have loved my conversations on Beyond the Grid with the sport's technical experts. And there's few people with more expertise than John Barnard, the man whose machines dominated Formula One in the 80s. He was the man behind various groundbreaking innovations, but it's his groundbreaking semi-automatic gearbox that I want to focus on now. And the reasons behind it might surprise you. For the benefit of the listeners, can you describe that headline bit of tech? Okay, it was fundamentally an electronic shifting gearbox. Um, it started with an idea I had ooh, back in 87, 
where I frankly got fed up with trying to find a nice route for the mechanical gear change through the car. And I thought to myself, how can I get around this problem? And I knew about things like these um, high-speed electro-hydraulic valves that were being used uh, at the time, specifically in the aircraft industry. And I thought, what I need is, is, you know, if I could just shift the, the levers in the gearbox hydraulically, and if I could operate that by pushing a button, all I've got to do is get some wires through the car to the gearbox. Hey, problem gone away with these ugly, nasty gear shifts and nasty big gear levers. So that's where we started. It was Initially, I thought about um, having a, a button on the steering wheel, shift up, one shift down. And that transpired into what everybody now calls the paddle shift. But fundamentally, it was me looking for a way around a packaging problem. In that period of time, Enzo Ferrari died, middle of 88. And along came a Fiat guy, a top boss from Fiat, who came in with the idea that he was basically going to take over from Enzo. He was going to be the next Enzo, as it were, which is obviously nonsense, but that was what was in his mind. And he was dead scared about this paddle shift gearbox. He did not want to run it because we hadn't been testing it that long. We'd had some problems um, reliability-wise, not function-wise, but reliability. And he was absolutely terrified that, you know, this thing, like we start running it in the 89 season, this thing would be a disaster and he would look stupid. And uh, so we had a huge fight over whether the 89 car was going to have it or not. And in the end, I won the fight. (laughs) How do you win, John, how do you win a fight like that? I mean, you put everything on the line, Tom. You, you, <laughs> you say, okay, my contract says I've got full technical control of Ferrari racing, everything, engine, chassis, the lot. That's what it says here. Now, I'm exercising that control. If you don't want me to exercise that control, then you have to buy my contract out, do something, you know, whatever. That's what it took. You put your, yeah, effectively your job took. on the line. Yeah, basically, that was it. And, uh, and I said, okay, you know, if it's no, we'll run it. If it's no good, here you go. There, there's the contract. So that's how we started. And <laughs> I have to say, no one was more surprised than we were when we won the first race. <laughs> He's quite a character, is John, and a real legend of Formula One. And his determination and vision really came out in our conversation. I hope you're enjoying reliving some of the best moments and memories we've had on Beyond the Grid this season. And there's still plenty more on the way. But first, a quick heads up to complement your F1 diaries that you don't want to miss. Expo 2020 Dubai and Formula One are thrilled to be joining forces to bring the world together. Kicking off on the 1st of October 2021... Expo 2020 brings you 182 days of what's next in art, music, food and tech as the planet collaborates to work together on real-life solutions to the world's most pressing challenges. So when you're at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix in 2021, it's an easy 60-minute drive to a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. There will be something on offer for everyone to enjoy. Techies will be able to experience the possibilities of a truly connected high-tech world, from autonomous vehicles to space travel, as they witness the latest innovations and breakthroughs and take a glimpse into the future. 
Entertainment fans will be wowed by more than 60 live shows each and every day. And foodies will be pleased to know that there will be cuisines on offer from every corner of the world. World Expos are a global celebration, and this is the first time it'll be hosted in the Middle East, Africa and South Asia region. So make sure you don't miss it. Be there as we bring the world together. To plan your experience, visit expo2020dubai.com. Now, if John Barnard made the sport faster with his semi-automatic gearbox, he also made it safer through the introduction of carbon fibre in 1981. But it took a while for carbon to filter down to the rest of the grid, as Jochen Mass found out to his detriment in 1982, when he was involved in a truly terrifying crash at the French Grand Prix. Here's his remarkable and truly poignant recollection of that moment. We've had a big accident on the back straight. That is Mario Baldi, but Jochen Mass is off as well, I think. Jochen Mass has gone off in the march. I think the two cars touched. A few races later, French Grand Prix in Le Castellet, and Baldi puts his, his front wheel between my right wheels, and I flipped on the road doing 288. And there, right further down, is Massey's car. And goodness me, it's gone through the catch fencing, over the Armco barrier. It's right in the spectator area, and it's on fire. Tense lap in the race, full tanks. And I flew, and the rollover bar was pushed in the first time he hit the, hit the road. And he caught fire because of that. The tank was pushed in. And um, so I ended up flying over. I got these knocks on the head. The helmet was broken right down to the thing. And I was flying end over end over the guardrail, over this uh, service road, into the spectators, burning. I was wrapped in, in the chicken wire. And luckily, I was the right way around. Had I been with the head down, I would have been decapitated, sliding over this concrete, because there was nothing anymore to protect you. And so on. So there I was, and it got hot, and I thought, this is going to be tight, and of course you feel that you can't get out. And then it was flooded by a foam gun. Luckily, 40 meters up, quickly came down and flooded it in foam. And uh, my wife sitting at home on, the, on TV, listening to the commentator, saying that he's dead, he can't survive that. But then I was, you know, got out of the car, and I had a prank on the shoulder, but I had nothing. I was blackened from the, from the fire and all that. You know, my, my overall, my helmet, what was left of it. But um, other than that, I had no injuries. That's Jochen Mass being led away. Jochen Mass shrugging his shoulders, waving his hands. And I think he is very, very lucky to be alive. While I flew, I had this strange sensation of, you know, your life is going in slow motion, you know, past you. And this was beautiful. It sounds ridiculous. It was beautiful. I saw the boys and my, my life and as such, and it was all nice. But at the same moment, I felt there's someone pointing at you. So you may as well give in to Formula One because the team was not very good and so on. So it didn't, you know, it didn't make any sense to continue. So that was it when I quit Formula One. And do you think Gilles' accident had helped contribute to your decision to quit Formula One? Oh, absolutely. It was definitely the, the point 
you know, had it not happened, perhaps I would have continued driving. Gilles' accident, you know, which sort of compounded the whole attitude of negativism, you know, in, in racing, how it can be sometimes. That raises the hairs on the back of your neck, doesn't it? As does the sound of the voice of my next guest. Now, when I spoke to Alex Zanardi back in June, little did I know what was to come for the inspirational Italian. He'd already suffered and come back from massive setbacks in his life. And shortly after we released our podcast with him, he suffered another with a life-threatening hand cycling accident. It goes without saying that all of us on the show wish Alex a swift and full recovery, and we hope that he can pull through once more. Alex, of course, is an Olympic champion in hand cycling. He told me how he felt when he crossed the line in 2012 to win the gold medal, and what he thinks of his status as a role model. When I crossed that line in London, ahead of everybody else, winning the gold medal, which, as I said, is better than finishing second, doing that last gesture, crossing that line, I was completing that project. And at that point, it hit me as a thunder, that feel of sadness of, I don't give a shit about the gold medal, allow me to go through it once more from the very beginning. I can't say London was better than winning Cleveland or, or winning the championship or passing Brian Erta, the corkscrew in Laguna Seca. Those are memorable moments of a fantastic life, which is really fantastic. Not so much for the single things which I was able to do, which are quite honestly, quite exceptional on their own anyway, but for the quantity of different things I've been able to fit in a single existence, this is the real treasure, which makes my life absolutely unique, including the accident and all the things that I was able then to do, thanks to what happened to me. Do you relish being the role model that you now are and the inspiration to so many people that you now are? I am just the same person, you know, a normal guy. And uh, it would be diabolical for me to believe or even worse, to try to act in order to serve that role. I'm fully aware of the fact that in doing things, I tend to inspire people because they want to see much more in what I do than I really express or that I technically really deliver. Not that this thing bothers me. Actually, I'm very proud. But I have to be honest and know that in reality, if our eyes would be more talented, we would find inspiration all around ourselves. We would not need Alex Zanardi to finish an Ironman under nine hours or win a gold medal or win a race, uh, a motorsports event, even if he's lost his legs. It would be sufficient to turn our head and see a mother who... She's sick. She wakes up sick. She feeds her kids with the breakfast. She takes them to school and she goes to work anyway because there's a family to feed. The example she gives may pass unnoticed, but is potentially as strong as the one I deliver whenever I win a race. Let's stick to the Italian theme for a moment and head next to a hugely enjoyable conversation I had with Riccardo Petrezzi, that popular race winner from the 80s and 90s. I remember Ricardo best in the Williams FW14, but that was towards the end of his career. It was with Brabham that he truly made a name for himself, and it was there that he was made to feel welcome from the outset by his new teammate, Nelson Piquet. First of all, I always enjoyed uh, 
my 17 uh, years of Formula One, even the low times. Uh, now, I still have a very good relationship uh, with all the teammates I had. And, uh, of course, also with uh, Nelson, I, I still have a very good friendship. And uh, I, it was a, when I came to Brabant, he was a already world champion because he, he's, he won in 1981. But uh, the atmosphere was very good. It was very familiar, the team, and uh, his attitude was always uh, very, uh, I you say, a good time all the time, uh, always jokes. And uh, so at the end, at the end, they were two years really very good with, uh, with Nelson. Uh, the team, uh, it was a, like a family team, uh, Gordon, uh, Charlie Whiting uh, was the chief mechanic, uh, Harry Blash, and of course, uh, Bernie. We were always uh, together and, uh, and of course, also very competitive because, uh, you know, in 1983, uh, we won the championship. The car was very, very, very good as the 1982 car, the Aspirate, that I, I won my first Grand Prix in Monaco. But I can just say one, one thing. The first day of testing, I went to Poricard because, the, you know, in winter time we were testing a lot of in Poricard. And uh, okay, and I met uh, all the team, and, and Nelson was there. We changed in the in the motorhome together, me and Nelson talking, and then we went for the for the day of testing. At the end of the day, uh, it was already dark because winter time, five o'clock uh, was dark. Uh, I, I went back to change, and suddenly I, I couldn't find my trousers. I said, uh, okay, and now what I do? Because, okay, I can go to the hotel with the over, but I would like to find my trousers. So I went uh, around and uh, nobody knew about uh, the trousers, where they were. And I said, uh, I mean, I left here in the motorhome. Uh, can I, you know, they, they must be somewhere. After half an hour that I was going around uh, to look for the trousers, uh, my mechanic came and said, come, come, come. Uh, uh, out uh, of the garage, uh, of the garages, uh, there were very high poles uh, uh, where the flags uh, they were standing, uh, usually. And in one of these poles, uh, about 20 meters high, there were my trousers, like, uh, you know, a, a flag. <laughs> that uh, They were on the top of the pole at 20 meters high. And I said, uh, who did this? Who did that? Of course, Nelson. That it was my first day with the team, you know, and immediately a joke just to start. And it went on like that for two years. That yeah. Welcome to the team, Ricardo. Welcome to the team. Exactly. Welcome to the team. What a brilliant anecdote. Those guys seriously knew how to have fun, and Mr. PK was as serious as a joker as he was a racer. Now, from one former PK teammate to perhaps his most famous. Yes, and what a fantastic debut it's been. Look for the chequered flag. Nigel Mansell has won the Brazilian Grand Prix. A race to remember, and Nigel Mansell may well wave his hand. This year, we saw Ferrari celebrate their 1,000th race in Formula One. And while it wasn't a good year for them on track in 2020, the history and the passion of the Scuderia remains unbroken. 
and Nigel Mansell articulated how brilliantly different life is for a Ferrari driver when he told the following story as part of our two-part Ferrari special that we produced to celebrate the team's landmark race. Do you look back on your two years at Ferrari as one of the highlights of your career? Yeah, without any question, uh, to have the experience of going there and to see what was accomplished and just the the whole atmosphere and the way they do things it's just so different i mean it was like it was like christmas on sticks really when i first joined there they just look after you incredibly well you walk past a racing ducati motorbike in the workshop in the first or second week i was there and i just said well that's nice and two weeks later racing ducati came to my home free of charge you know there's a nice race in ducati and then about a few weeks went past and i was testing and they said, would I test a new Testeros around the racetrack? And I said, oh, I think I need to put a bit more understeer in the car. This is a bit pointy for being on the road. And I said, but, you know, wonderful car. That's all I said. Two weeks later, I got a brand new Testeros back, back in my home all for free, you know. But I tested that myth because it was about two months later, we were testing down in Estoril. And um, we borrowed one of the Falcon 900s. Um, Yes, we're, we're late, so, uh, and I flew the Falcon 900 down to Estoril, uh, to Lisbon, and um, the, the captain who let me fly it, I said, please tell your boss that this plane is fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And there's a limit to the generosity because that was worth about 32 million. I'm still waiting for it to come. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel, that's fantastic. But, but they're great. You, you've got your own masseurs to wake you up in the morning, put you to bed, you've got your own chef with Luigi, you got your doctors. Yeah, it's, it's the greatest polemic team in Formula One. Uh, there's so many things that goes on that you don't want to talk about. But overall, the experience for me, it was fantastic. What a great story told superbly. Now, the next time I go to Maranello, and speaking of Maranello, let's go next to Sebastian Vettel, whose six-year stint at the Scuderia came to an end in Abu Dhabi last weekend. He's won 14 races for the team and finished in the top three in the championship on three occasions. But Seb went there to emulate his hero, Michael Schumacher, and his assessment of the job he's done is stark. I don't, I don't think I will go on having any regrets looking back. It is true that I have failed because I set myself the mission or the target to win the championship with Ferrari. I have failed. I didn't, didn't manage to do that. There's things that I should have done better, things that maybe I should have seen earlier, fights that maybe I shouldn't have picked. But then again, I think everything that happened brought me to where I am now. You see what I mean? So it's not like, you know, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm generally not talking about... Uh, stuff that happens on the track now losing the car in Hockenheim in, in sort of half wet half dry conditions you, many people point that, that one out as a low point but um, I'm not talking about things like that I'm not more talking about what's been going on and uh, yeah so if I'm fair and harsh then I have failed were there reasons? Probably yes but I don't want to you know I, I don't accept them as excuses um, so Whatever happened also, I guess, put me on the next step forward and uh, next level to, yeah, focus you on the next You say there were battles that you wish you hadn't fought. Is there one that stands out? No, not out? wish, but just think that maybe they weren't, looking back, they weren't worth 
fighting, you see what I mean? So, but then again, part of it is probably my nature and uh, it was natural to do so. And I think I had a point as well in some of these, some of these little fights and battles, whatever. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately that's how you mature and how you learn. I mean, again, I think the important bit is I don't have the sense of regret. I'm, I'm happy to, to move on. So, Well, let's move on. You're going to Aston Martin. When you were discussing next year with Lawrence Stroll, what convinced you? Well, he did. Um, I think the fact that uh, the team is growing, a lot of factors. So I think those boxes were quite easy to tick in terms of, you know, the performance, um, the uh, racing side of things, you know, where the team is, where the team might be, uh, the potential and so on. But more so, I think it was the mindset and uh, the will to really do something and do something good, bring something good together. And it sounds like a fun project and something that, yeah, ultimately I decided I want to be part of. So it is very different to Ferrari, obviously, uh, you know, Racing Point as it stands today and in the future Aston Martin will will be growing. There will be a lot of things happening for the first time. And I think it's uh, an incredible challenging journey for the whole team and me joining i hope i can contribute <laughs> a lot of things and uh, do do good in the car and outside the car what was so revealing about this episode with seb who's usually so private was how he opened up a little bit about his life away from formula one he's a man with many interests and he's got a mighty fine car collection to polish over the winter months well what about a weekend off the calendar is quite intense so actually it's quite nice to have a weekend off but um yeah obviously I, d I don't see weekdays and weekends you know for it's just all blends into one but uh for sure with the kids and then the weekend becomes a bit more of a weekend like other people have it normally it's quite relaxed just going for a walk uh with the dog spending time outside i mean now it's the season we picked some apples so Whatever, you know, I don't, I, I don't, there's no particular schedule. It just comes up stuff that you can do with the kids stuff. Obviously I go training uh, when the weather is nice. I might go for a bike ride and, you know, pick outside rather than inside always and chill out. Yeah. Just do whatever comes, comes up. What about the motorbikes? I've been told you, you've got a, a collection of bikes. Is that yeah, right? I have some old bikes. Um, I just like to go out. Again, if the weather is nice, not when it's, I don't do it when, it, when the weather isn't nice. So um, just to have a joy ride, really, just an hour or 30 minutes. But I don't go, it, I don't push because the bikes are scary if you push. <laughs> Drum brakes and they don't really work and all this stuff. How, how old are they? I mean, depending. It, I mean, the oldest I have is 1928. That's a challenge in itself just to fire it up and then also to uh, actually drive because you have hand throttle, you have the brakes uh, on the on the foot but on the wrong foot or the other way around and then they're all different so you have the italian italian bikes the english bikes the way they you know the way you shift you have normally nowadays you have the shift on the left and uh, you upshift on the way up and you downshift on the way down in the past they had it on the right side the english bikes and then even the other way around the italian bikes so then you just need to, it's also a bit of a mental exercise to remember because if you if the red if the light goes red and you have to stop then you know, you, you're doing foot brake, but actually what you're doing is you're shifting up. So it's not really helping. So you need to need to remember. But th yeah, I just like to, the sound and just... Uh, you're a mechanical yeah. nut. 
because you've also got old cars yeah what i like about the old things is that you get what you see or you see what you get nowadays with a modern car i mean they're nice cars don't get me wrong but you you just i don't i don't think you can attach to them as much as the old cars because especially the behind the scenes or under underneath the hood or bonnet what's going on because you haven't got a clue it's full of plastic it's all covered up and all the magic happens somewhere else you see what i mean so i think that's a well, bit will of you a put your overalls shame. on and go and get get your hands dirty and do all the mechanics yourself not enough i would love to do more of that but uh, then you know it's obviously if i have time i i do whatever comes up but for sure i prioritize the family so you, you know you yeah. spend i much rather spend time with the kids look, on this car collection fixing fixing the bike Seb, on this car collection i don't know how much you're prepared to give away but have you got a favorite yeah my all-time favorite is the f40 beautiful yeah. classic yeah what about racing car racing cars um well it's not like i have tons of racing cars <laughs> i have a couple of old cars that i really like and can relate to like the red five from nigel menso um, have you driven that yet not yet but i'm planning on so i think most of the people they have these cars but they never use it so it's a bit of a shame like there are pieces of art and normally you hang up art up your wall and you look at it so you can treat it that way but i think the cool thing is you can actually sit in that piece of art and drive it as well so feel it um but i guess my all-time favorite is the uh, 2004 ferrari that michael drove i think that's i don't know the v10 the sound that's just what i grew up with in that's you know my best childhood memory formula one type of thing so you haven't got that. You just no. like that car. The one no. that we had at Mugello with Mick, yeah, exactly. Mick driving. And yeah. I've spoken to Sebastian many times in my stint in Formula One, but I really did enjoy this chat. And I know many of you out there did as well. The chance to talk about subjects other than Formula One was rare and it was enlightening. The 2020 Formula One season has come to an end. And Beyond the Grid's sister podcast, F1 Paddock Pass, has been getting the drivers instant reaction to every moment. From the Ferraris colliding in Austria, to Nico Hülkenberg's return at Silverstone, to Pierre Gasly and Sergio Perez's stunning first victories, F1 Paddock Pass was there for it all. And you can now relive the entire season for free on Spotify with the back catalogue. Every episode is packed full of race highlights, team radio gems and views from the winners and losers in every Grand Prix. Plus, the drivers open up. Lando Norris talks about managing his mental health. Lewis Hamilton reveals the occasional loneliness of the 2020 season. And Alex Albon explains how he's coped with a year full of constant pressure. And you can listen to F1 Paddock Pass for free, no need for a premium account, on Spotify. And why not hit the follow button so you're all set for the start of the 2021 season. Like Seb, another man with an impressive car collection is McLaren boss Zach Brown. When he's not overseeing everything in Woking, he's kicking tyres, his own tyres, and he loves every single car in his collection. Seems to me whenever you've had some spare cash lying around, you've been investing in cars or just racing cars? Both. I'm a car guy. I don't need to give away any, too many secrets, but how many have you got? Pooh, um, my total collection is near about 50 now. Wow. Um, and it's probably uh, two-thirds race cars, a third road cars. And I, I love them all. They're all like kids. I've got to, and, and, I, and I, when I buy them, even though they're great investments, 
I'm buying them because I, I love them. I used to collect the little model cars, and as Richard said, all I've done is done the same thing. I've just got the bigger <laughs> version uh, now. And um, I've got a collecting criteria, which in the race cars, each car that I have had to have won a race in period. I don't care who drove it, what car it was. If it finished second, I'm not interested. So all my cars have won races. In my Formula One collection, all the cars were driven by world champions. My IndyCar collection are all driven by IndyCar champions. So, And they're all the stuff that is personal to me growing up, the stuff, the posters I had on the, on the wall, so to speak. So it uh, makes me feel like a little kid again. Can you tell us what cars you've got or the ones you're, you're, the ones you're most proud of? Yeah, I, um, uh, I love them all. It's like, which is your favorite <laughs> kid? Um, some that, that stand out. Senna's 1991 uh, McLaren uh, Monaco winner championship year. So if I had to pick one to take with me, that would be it. Because Senna was my guy. McLaren's my team. And it's the actual Monaco. chassis. It's he the won actual, it. actual car he won, uh, won wow. from Poland. Uh, I've got Mario's uh, Lotus 79 that he debuted in at the uh, in Belgium when he won. And that was a you know, JPS car. So on the Formula One, and then I've got Nigel's uh, FW11B from 87, the car he won the British Grand Prix in with that famous move on PK. So um, Are they some, all goers? Do they all got everything engines? runs. Everything runs. It has to run. And then on the IndyCar side, um, I got directly from Roger, uh, who's my hero in, in, in business and in racing. Um, Emo's 1989 Indy 500 winner and championship car. I'm a huge Emo fan. McLaren's first world champion. I remember that race like it was yesterday. He touched a little owl with about three laps to go. It's a Penske car I got from Roger. So that, from an IndyCar standpoint, is um, my favorite. And then I've got, you know, an Al Jr., a Danny Sullivan, a Michael Andretti. I've got another one that's just very emotional for me is the, I found Mario's 1987 Long Beach Grand Prix uh, winner. The one that got it all started for me and um, took about two years to restore it. And then Mario and I went to Chicago last year and he shook it down for me. And a lot of the team, because the team was based in Chicago, Newman Haas came out. And so to kind of, and the thing that was even cooler was, you know, who his engineer was? Adrian Newey. <laughs> and Adrian was there. So we got this great photo we've got with it, all of Adrian's uh, setup sheets. So we've got a photo of Mario in the car, Adrian next to him with his setup sheets. And it was just, you know, to me, that's, that's why I, I collect is for moments like that to reunite Adrian and Mario in the car, which is what got me into racing. So, the, you know, each car has yeah. kind of a story like that behind it. Hands up who wants a tour of Zach's personal car collection. It's the stuff of dreams. And Zach has made it a reality thanks to his hard work and passion for the sport. One thing's clear, Zach loves Ayrton Senna. So let's go next to Julian Jacobi, the man who managed both Senna and Alain Prost at the same time during the height of their rivalry. I still can't get my head around what an incredible feat that was to manage the two greatest drivers of their generation together. Julian's got some great stories. How did you even begin to look after those two guys at the same time? must have been such a complex thing. No, not at all. Because Alain had become a client in, at the end of 82. And I guess we must have done a pretty good job for him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have, wouldn't have recommended us uh, to Ayrton. I then met Ayrton and his father. And at that time, he had a manager called Armando Botella to share. But they were looking for somebody to help them in Europe and with Formula One. 
in particular. And then sadly, Armando, uh, who was the business partner of Ed, his father died in 1986, cancer. So I was kind of left looking after Ed. But it worked well. Can we talk about Ayrton then? Yeah. You were Ayrton's manager for nine years. How do you reflect on that period of your career? Um, busy. There was always something. His contracts were always complex because he, had, he was a little different from others in the sense that being a national icon in Brazil and having most of Brazil behind him, we had to carve out of contracts certain image rights. Probably he was the first racing driver who carved out image rights. So the standard Ron Dennis sort of contract couldn't apply to him. But even in the Lotus contracts, it was the same thing. If you remember, they had Banco Nacional as a sponsor right across the, the, the front of the uh, overalls. Well, that was an exercise in itself. So it was different. How demanding was he? Very, very demanding. But... But very interesting. I mean, I, you know, I got along with him very well. And he was, I mean, highly intelligent. Um, I mean, I would say, uh, I mean, I've looked after many, many clients over the years, not just in, in motor racing, but, you know, in tennis, and golf and music business, actors, business people. Um, but he would be certainly in the top five of the most intelligent people that I've worked with. He, as you know, had a degree in business administration university. He then sort of stopped at university. But I mean, you know, he was extremely switched on business-wise. And in those days, I don't know if you recall, remember the yellow A4 pads, beloved of Americans? Yeah. Yeah. yeah? He used to always operate with yellow A4 pads and he would, we would divide up an A4 pad into about five or six columns and we'd work out in advance. There were no emails in those days. So we'd work out in advance the start position in a negotiation, what we would expect the other side to come back with. Column three would be second offer. Column four would be what they would come back with. Column five would be probably where we, what we would end up with. And that's how we did any negotiation. And how accurate were those they predictions? Were accurate. Well, because they were accurate because it depended on, you know, in any negotiation, it depends on who holds the stronger cards. So the stronger the cards that you hold, the more likely it is you're going to end up with what you want in column five. And because you were representing Ayrton Senna, you reckoned you always had the strongest card? In those days, yes. Was he interested in business? I mean, yes, he had that degree, but oh, did yeah, you sense well he was interested in the deal and how it happened and the market forces and all that? Don't sort of forget that he made an awful lot of money out of Formula One. And so did Alan. I mean, they both did extremely well at Formula One. That's another story, you know, um, between the two of them. And there wasn't much to choose between them as to how well they did business-wise. But the interesting thing about, about Ayrton was that he had a, a view for business. And if you remember, just before he died, 94, that he had set up the relationship with Audi and the Senna family became the Audi importers in Brazil of Audi cars. And they had all the dealerships and import things. So that, that deal was set up by us in 1990. We started working on it in 1990, late 92, early 93. And that came to fruition. And even after he died, the family did extremely well. Incredible stuff. I know a lot of you wouldn't have been familiar with Julian before this show. And I'm sure many of you won't forget him now. Which brings me to my last highlight of the year, George Russell. 
George Russell now with a commanding lead of this Grand Prix, surely. George, we're going to need to box box. We have a mixed tyre set on the car. No! And Bottas is wide to maybe open the door. He's off the racing line. Russell's got the better grip. Is he going to brave it around the outside? How much does George Russell want this one? There's your answer. George Russell is up to fourth. Let's hear Russell. Looks like a rear left puncture. Looks like rear left no. puncture. Guys. I don't know what to say. I was taken away from us twice. Honestly. The Sakir Grand Prix remains fresh in the memory. Just imagine if he'd won that race. But his time will come. I'm convinced of that. I caught up with him ahead of the British Grand Prix when we talked about everything going on in his life. But given what's happened since then, it's when he was talking about where he's come from that I began to truly understand his links to the Mercedes team. When did you do the deal to become part of the Mercedes Junior programme? The first conversation goes back to um, 2015, actually. So it started at Abu Dhabi, end of season testing. I was testing GP3 and my manager, Harry Soda, managed to get hold of Toto Wolf's email address. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to email him and send my CV. I didn't really ask for anything. I just wanted to introduce myself. It was late at night in Abu Dhabi. I was quite nervous in sending the email, but I thought, I've got nothing to lose here. I sent him the email, you know, hi, I'm George Russell. This is my CV. You know, it'd be great to, to meet, meet with you one day in the future, etc., etc. I put my phone away and I woke up the next morning and I saw I had a response from Toto. Not only a response, it was within, I think it was within 20 minutes of receiving my email. He replied saying, thanks for your email, George. It'd be great to meet up. Here's my PA's details, arrange a meeting with him. And I was sat in his office I think it was two months later. So that's where the initial conversation happened. But when I really became sort of a part of Mercedes was following the 2015 season. I'd actually been unofficially the reserve driver for BMW in DTM. I did a rookie test with them and that went incredibly well. And I was on the verge of signing a full-time race seat deal with them. In the DTM? In the DTM. So this would have been the end of 2015, start of 2016, but for the drive in 2017. So a year later. So by this point, I had sort of accepted. I didn't have any backing to help me get to Formula One. At the time, none of the Formula One teams were overly interested. And I was pretty settled to say, you know, this is DTM. It was a huge salary. It's probably the next best thing to Formula One. And I was committed to going down that route. And I was here at the start of January at my parents' house, ready to sign the contract. One day, I was just laying in the bath and I got a phone call from a French guy called Gwen Lagrou, who was Esteban Ocon's manager and had been signed by Mercedes to, to head the Young Driver program. And he said to me, Hi, George. I, was, I, I knew Gwen for a long time. I've just... Um, started working with Mercedes and you're the first guy I want to sign. And that's where it started. So it started all in the bath in, <laughs> back in 2016. And um, the conversations were ongoing. I signed a contract at the start of 2016 and officially became a driver at the start of 2017. And another story actually with Toto was at the Autosport Awards in, at the end of 2015. So 
I was there just on a bit of a jolly at the end of the season. I actually had a couple of drinks and I was feeling a little bit cocky maybe, but I was with a few of my other racing mates and I just said, oh, I'm just going to wander over and go and chat to Toto. So this was after all of the awards had happened and we were just having a really good chat and he remembered me from the meeting earlier in the year and uh, discussed about future plans, etc., etc. And as it got to 12 o'clock, one of the bouncers came over to me, directly to me. He said, hi, George, I remember you from last year when you won the Autosport Awards, but you're actually too young to be here after 12 o'clock at night. I said, I'm, I'm sorry. He said, yeah, we've only got a license to allow, you know, under 18s in here until midnight. I said, I'm sorry, I'm talking to Toto Wolf here. You know, this is my future potentially. And you're all <laughs> depriving me of this opportunity. You know, he might have turned around and offered me the deal there and then. And um, <laughs> so I was there with a glass of red wine in my hand, getting ushered away by a bouncer, you know, halfway through my conversation with Toto. So uh, fortunately, we had another conversation uh, a couple of months later. Listening to that now is so poignant, isn't it? He came so close to a fairy tale with Mercedes, but his history with Toto Wolff suggests it will happen at some point. Well, that rounds out this show and also season three of Beyond the Grid. What a year it's been. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my conversations with the sports greats as much as we've enjoyed producing them. A huge thank you to all of my guests this year and to everyone who's worked on the show and most notably Johnny Reynolds, Chris Browning and Karen Bevan. And of course to you, our listeners. We're going to have a little break now but we'll be back in the new year with more great conversations. And don't think I've forgotten your feedback. As ever, I wanted to read out some of your messages about last week's show with Mattia Benotto. If his chat hadn't been so fresh in the memory, he'd definitely have made this best of episode. Babalashko got in touch to say this. For a guy often labelled as having no idea what he's doing, Mattia really demonstrated the exact opposite. I think with F1 being such a fast sport, many forget that building a winning team takes a lot of time, especially with larger-than-life expectations. I couldn't agree more. Criticism goes with the territory when being Ferrari boss, but Mattia is a smart cookie. Mr. T. Wood had a message along similar lines. Just finished the discussion with Mattia Bonotto, he says. I was not aware of his storied past with the Scuderia. He obviously has a skill set that Ferrari could see applied in the long term. He's achieved numerous successes already and is young enough to bring them back to the podium. We always love to bring you insight and information you never knew. Thanks for the comments, Mr. Wood. And finally, Miroslav Matias had this to say. So interesting, this one, especially the part about Michael Schumacher not being good at giving technical feedback about the car, instead being accurate as clockwork. Completely agree, Miroslav. It's just not what you expect to hear about a seven-time world champion. But Mattia worked very closely with him, and it goes to show there is more than one way to provide feedback. That's it for now. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app or better yet, tell a friend and get them listening too. And please keep your feedback coming. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. In the meantime, enjoy the holidays and keep it flat out. <laughs>